0: Welcome to HashiCast, the self-proclaimed number one podcast about the world of DevOps practices, tools, and practitioners. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of HashiCast. We have Paul Banks and Mishra from HashiCorp on the show today. Both of you have been on the show before but i think it's worth that uh you reintroduce yourselves again so we'll start with paul and then we'll have mishra introduce himself
1: thanks rosemary i'm paul
2: i'm an uh, engineering lead on the console team at the moment thank you rosemary uh yeah as rosemary mentioned you might recognize my voice uh it's because i've hosted a few of these uh, uh so my name is mishra i'm the technical advisor to the cto i work uh in the office of the cto on strategic initiatives Uh, internally and uh, a few external initiatives as well.
0: So Mishra, how does it feel to be on the other side of the table, so to speak?
2: (laughs) It's actually more nerve wracking than, you know, being a host, to be really honest with you. It's like, you know, you're put in the hot seat and you have to get everything right. Uh, So but, you know, to be honest, like this being uh, kind of a homecoming for me, I I don't feel that nervous, but absolutely means it's definitely a different feeling.
0: And uh, you and Paul are guests, but at one point you did interview Paul, right, for, uh, what was it exactly?
2: It was uh, Console, I think when we launched Console Connect, so it was Mitchell and Paul that were on the show. Paul was, of course, one of the lead engineers for Console Connect, and this was, I, I don't know how many years ago, Paul? It was at least a couple. couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was exciting.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and I think we've come full circle, because guess what we're talking about today? <laughs> Uh, we're going to talk about the HashiCorp console global scale benchmark. Either Paul or Mishra, can you tell us a little bit of the history of how this benchmark came to be?
2: I can go go first, Paul, and then maybe you can add. Uh, so, yeah, I think the, the, the history behind this, before we even get into, you know, history behind the, the console benchmark, I think... We should take a step back and talk about HashiCorp, like the history behind HashiCorp and benchmarks. So I think we've done one uh, in 2016. That was the first benchmark, public benchmark that we published, uh, which was on Nomad. So we schedule a million containers in five minutes across, I think, 5,000 hosts uh, on Google Cloud Platform. So Google was kind enough to give us the credits to run that. And that was an exciting challenge that I think got people excited about schedulers and how fast you can kind of schedule containers uh, using Nomad. And then the Nomad team outdid themselves more recently again in, in December. So we, they ran the 2 million container challenge and they scheduled 2 million containers in 22 minutes across, you know, I think 18 AWS regions. Uh, don't quote me on that. And I think uh, I think about like 6,100 hosts or something. Uh, so it was like, you know, just trying, you know, re- rerunning that benchmark again uh, and showcasing the the capabilities that Nomad has. So what when we were thinking through this the idea was to bring something similar of this scale uh, and test out console but in the context of console and when we looked at the market you know there were a lot of tests that were you know that was similar but not quite the same because they they were more focused around the data plane and which was on which is on why in, in console's case as well um, and we were more interested in kind of figuring out whether the control planes actually, you know, scale scalable at at you know really large scales and so on. And so that was the motivation behind it. We wanted to do to test out the uh, we wanted to do a benchmark to test out the control plane, uh, and specifically, you know, you know, a few tests that hopefully we can talk about. Uh, and then we so we initially proposed it from the office of the CTO. Uh, this benchmark was, of course, a lot, you know, it's interesting. It was reviewed by. Uh, by Paul and Paul, of course, is one of the principal engineers on the console team, and then I think Rosemary, you, re- you reviewed the proposal as well. If you remember, like in the initial days, this was in 2019. Uh, so yeah, it was interesting. All of, all of the people that we need are in the in the podcast today <laughs> to talk about it. So yeah, I think that was the kind of the story behind it. And then you know the the office of the CTO and, and of course console team collaborated on uh, on working together. Uh, it's very much a collaboration, uh, and all the hard work that the console team has put in kind of showcased in this benchmark.
1: Yeah, I I think for me as as an engineer working on this, it's it was just it's it's a somewhat rare opportunity, right? Like we we built console for many years, and we know of many users and customers who run it at like the kind of scale we ran, to be honest, like pretty pretty high scale. Um and we certainly do get opportunities to work with them and to kind of get get some data from them about how it's doing but it's certainly not something that we get every day the chance to see how our software actually runs at that scale and be able to kind of interrogate and, and debug and and really figure out what's going on um, and like it would be it would be like wonderful in an ideal world if we if we could like you know every release just spin up 10,000 node cluster and see how we're doing um, but as as we'll probably find out like the 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 cost in terms of engineering effort and frankly the cost in terms of actual like dollars on amazon or wherever you do it is makes that very very challenging and i think having this kind of a benchmark where we can um put the put the work in to get into that state and also get great support and sponsorship from amazon and from datadog and from some other people who helped us with with the cost of the infrastructure um that just made it a really great opportunity that we don't get too often.
0: Pretty interesting because I think about all the times um, in you know in the US there's Black Friday, which is the big e-commerce uh, day after Thanksgiving, and usually people uh, who are in sort of the e-commerce or retail space submit you know months in advance to basically pre-allocate load balancers, resources, etc. Did you have to do any of this to test? Uh, the, for this benchmark, like how many resources did you end up having to pre-allocate uh, on the cloud provider?
2: For for the benchmark, it was it was actually quite as quite as pretty straightforward setup. Like it it wasn't anything. It means at, at the end, like what we concluded with, we ended up with we had. Of course, we were very ambitious initially. We wanted to do more, you know, different you know, different scenarios that that we want to put console through in. Uh, but I think what we ended up with was a quite straightforward setup. Um, so, so, I can kind of talk about the sequencing of things, and that kind of gives you some context of like how uh, the the test bench was set up. Uh, so essentially, what we did is we we first created uh, the the console you know control plane, uh, which was uh, which was like the console servers in in a uh, in 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 consoles context, I guess. And then we created Nomad uh, Nomad servers, which are the, which was a scheduler for this uh, for this really large run. Uh, and so these were five server, uh, five servers uh, in, in terms of console, and then there were three servers for Nomad, uh, and then uh, we ended up creating uh, uh, all the workload. So this is this is quite, uh, I guess, uh, it's not as traditional as how people would do it. You know, essentially you would have some nodes to run things on, and then you would schedule workload on them. But because we were, as Paul said, we had quite a risk. Rest- I mean, we had budget, but it was, you know, we had to be under that budget. So you can't go beyond that. So we wanted to use every second of the billing cycle when it comes to the nodes. So to optimize for that, what we did is we actually, you know, queued all the work first. So we, we used Terraform. We created all the workload. This was about 178,000 jobs that were scheduled uh, on on the nom- on, on the Nomad scheduler. And then Nomad actually just queues these up. And then when nodes are available, uh, it would just schedule the workload as as, as needed in terms of uh, based on the algorithm that you're using. In our case, we use the spread algorithm, which allows to kind of spread the load across all the nodes that are available. Um, so, yeah, th- that was kind of the, the queuing of everything. And then, then then we started like all of these, you know, 5,000 nodes and you know we added like 5,000 nodes and then we add another 5,000 nodes. Uh, but these with these things are like available in minutes on the Amazon platform so they come up pretty quick uh so we did some optimizations to kind of make them uh, uh you know make make the uh make the overloading case uh, you know like less likely and this is i think I, I would let paul explain like how we how we did that i think we were we were pretty impressed with how quickly we could
1: just scale an auto scaling group on Amazon from zero to 5,000. And within a few minutes we had 5,000 VMs and uh, every VM as it comes up, has to join the cluster, which introduces some load on gossip, but then it has to register itself in the catalog and the servers. And, 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 what we would see if we just let 5,000 nodes all start at the same time was kind of this thundering herd of requests on the servers that would, like, it would eventually kind of work, but it could kind of, you know, it would overload the servers in, in, in little spikes as things came up. Um, and so what, what we actually did was um, we had the, the Packer image that we'd created for each of these worker nodes had this, like, uh, startup script which had a random sleep From zero to about, I think it was about 25 minutes in the end. Yeah, 25, 26 minutes, yeah. Because we were kind of expecting Amazon to like schedule these things over like 10, 15 minutes and it to come up kind of slowly in, but they just came up so fast that we had to like introduce that stagger. so that the console agents themselves actually came up just a little more slowly and in a more controlled way, um, and and that just just meant that we didn't have any errors we didn't have any leadership flapping on the console servers, everything just stayed really like calm and under control right through the the spin up process
2: so essentially just increase the possibility of success for every run because we we couldn't afford these runs, we couldn't afford them to rerun them multiple times, so just increase the possibility of success. Yeah, like it was, it was expensive. If you like got
1: ten minutes into a run and then the server's overloaded and it crashed and you lost all the metrics and you had to spend fifteen minutes figuring out if you should start again, like it just cost too much to to have that kind of uncertainty in the run.
0: Yeah, I'm learning two things from this uh, interesting experience, and the first is the power of the elasticity of cloud and the cost, uh, and how much of the benchmarking had to be in fact. You had to factor cost into it. Um, which is not something we talk about that often, but I'm also very impressed with the power of sleep, right? Like everybody can judge what they want about the the sleep command uh, on a machine, but you know, it sounds like it was actually really useful in this. You only had five console servers. Was there a reason why there were only five? I would expect, you know, more of them because uh, if you're running what you said, 5,000 nodes at a time,
1: Five, five is a pretty typical production number for us. Um, generally, you need an odd, odd number of at least three because of the way the the kind of consensus protocol works and the you know, consistency model. Generally, if you go too many more than five, actually servers that actually vote, you you run into write performance issues. With console Enterprise, you can scale that to add additional read replicas, which can can increase your capacity that way. But at certain points in this like this isn't a typical workload, right? At certain points in this, we were very much write constrained trying to register th- like hundreds of thousands of services in a very short period of time, which isn't very typical. And read read replicas don't help you scale your write. So they wouldn't actually have helped very much here. But we, we really wanted to keep it, uh, keep the servers like a pretty typical production setup and not something absolutely crazy that no no users are going to actually have access
2: to.
0: Did you try this on Kubernetes as well?
2: <laughs> that's a good question. Uh, so I'll, I'll try to be as uh, honest as possible here. So, uh, so yes. So initially, actually, the benchmark was supposed to do majority of the test on Kubernetes, and that was that's how the test bench is actually designed. So today, you can try that. It's available on GitHub. All the code is available, and I think uh, Rosemary, we can put like the link in the description, maybe for the listeners. But essentially. What we did is we tried uh, to, you know, create the exact same setup uh, uh, for like with console servers, with a control plane, with the nodes and so on uh, on Kubernetes. So what we saw is like, uh, you know, as we, you know, kind of went from uh, milestone to milestone. So again, just something to know is that this benchmark was just not all of a sudden we ran a 10,000 node, you know, cl- uh, workload. No, we went from very small load count, node counts to all the way up to 10,000 nodes. So there were milestones like 500 nodes, 1,000 nodes. Two thousand nodes, and and we were gradually kind of you know scaling up and finding issues and fixing them. And I'm sure we can talk about what the issues that we found on the console side. But I think the 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 one particular thing that we saw with the Kubernetes uh, scheduler uh, was that um, it took it took us a really long time to get the nodes in ready state. So in Kubernetes, once a node joins, it's usually not ready state, and it takes a while uh, for the kubelet to register and like you know uh, the, maybe the CNI plugin to be available. Um, all of those stuff to to be available before you can actually schedule something. So it, we couldn't. So it would take substantially long time to register like thousand nodes. And if you went up, like if you went to three thousand nodes, three thousand nodes, it would just the time would just keep increasing. And again, this is where the budget hits us again. We just didn't have enough time. Where like for example, we would add thousand nodes, then we would you know wait another thirty minutes to add another thousand nodes. Those thousand nodes are just sitting idle for for. Um, you know, for whatever thirty minutes or so, which would cost us money. Uh, so again, the if I, if we would have more budget, we would run the exact same thing on Kubernetes, no problem, because Kubernetes can scale, uh, you know, fairly fairly easily. Of course, we were using uh, you know the Kubernetes platform on, on on Amazon, but it just took longer. So we just had to optimize for that, and and that's why we we only published the results for a five hundred node Kubernetes cluster. Now that being said, the times that you saw uh, like the 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 test times for endpoint propagation and tension propagation, the two main tests that we did uh, basically are consistent. Like they'll be consistent on Nomad. They'll be consistent on Kubernetes. If you run it on VMs, it would be the same. Um, you know, <clears throat> the the key, another key thing here is that in what I've seen in production environments for Kubernetes, people tend on creating smaller clusters, but many clusters. So uh, essentially they, they'll kind of, you know, maybe segmented per team or segmented per environment, but it's less often like someone will have a massive Kubernetes cluster and run a multi-tenant system. Uh, So that's less likely in kind of production. At least from my experience, uh, uh, I might be wrong, but this is what I saw in in practice. So this is what, this is why we published the results, which I think we were relevant. So a 500 node Kubernetes cluster is something that's realistic and something that people might be running in production
0: as well. That makes sense to me. I definitely trend towards smaller Kubernetes clusters and more of them. And in that case, Would that change the uh, or add a metric that you would measure? We'll talk about the metrics that you did measure, but would that need to add another metric like federation or something else to it?
2: The one way would be that you would have, which we actually tried, and and the Dense Bench is able to do this. So essentially, what you would do is you would create, uh, you know, let's say ten small Kubernetes clusters, let's say five thousand nodes each or something, also five hundred nodes each or something like that, Uh, and then. Essentially, what you would do is you would just use one console cluster that would encompass all of these other, like, I means from console's context, right? Uh, it doesn't matter, like, how you how you create them. As long as you're able to gossip across them and, and be able to connect to the servers, uh, you should be in a good place. Uh, and also, like, make sure that the connect, uh, you know, if you're using the service mesh, the connect sidecars are able to talk to each other and so on on the networking side. So as long as you create the topology okay on the networking side, you should be able to use one console cluster that you know can take care of all of these things. And we wouldn't have to test from you know, cross DC stuff and all of these type of things. It'll just make the layout super simple. Uh, but on the other side, you could do you know per Kubernetes cluster, like per, per one console cluster and map it to one Kubernetes cluster. And then you would have like in this case, 10, 10 console clusters, which may be van joint and for those of you who don't know, console's are multi-DC, uh, you know, out of the box. So you don't have to do anything special. Uh, you just have to make sure that, you know, they're able to talk over land, something like that. And, and you're able to connect connect them fairly easily. So you could do that as well.
1: Yeah, I think console definitely su- supports both models. Um, we have some customers who, who kind of run their entire facility as a single console data center with 10,000 and... Maybe even more nodes in, um, but we definitely see. You know, there there are also good reasons why you might want to break that down, even within one facility, and kind of have have separate console that we call them data centers, which is maybe slightly confusing. But you know, separate console sets of servers and and uh, gossip pools, and that that can just enable you to limit blast radius if, if there is an outage or if there is kind of a badly behaved client that's causing issues on the servers or something similar to that. So we definitely see both models. Um, and we're currently working on, uh, some additional flexibility around because cause like you both both said, Rosemary and Mishra, we like w- we've seen a lot of organizations who are like using these smaller kube clusters, maybe one per team, but then are wanting a more centralized control plane for the networking across all of them. And so we're we're trying to work on some kind of additional flexibility with with the way you deploy console in those kinds of situations at the moment as well.
0: Nice. So I guess that demands a retest sometime. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, yeah. (laughs) We'll figure it out. Um, And before we get to the actual metrics that you did measure, I did want to clarify there are other service mesh performance measurement initiatives out there. Uh, This is, I guess, the benchmark specific to console, but there are others, and there's an initiative within the CNCF, SIG Network for Service Mesh Performance. How is this different, or did you reference some of the material that? uh the group has been working on to influence some of the work that you've been doing with this benchmark?
2: Yeah, I think so. It's actually part of the report. Uh so we've linked um the Meshri folks uh, who do an amazing job at you know doing doing these performance tests. They have a pretty decent test bench that you could use uh, you know, to, to measure this. And they've actually measured console as well. But again, this comes back to a point of like this test being kind of unique in a way where we really focused on the control plane scalability and you will come to know as we talk about the metrics that we measured uh, which is quite like means it looks quite like non-traditional when you look at like the industry data and stuff there's a lot of data about data planes which is on why like how 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 quick you know how, what's the request latency that's added by a proxy and all of those type of tests and requests per second and a throughput and all of these type of tests are really well laid out and they're proven, uh, and uh, you know, we did, I think there's tests around, uh, you know, the the Linkerd REST proxy that they use versus Envoy, which Istio uses as well. Um, and yeah, so I think that data is, was always available, and I, I, I f- we felt like doing that test again would would just not be that useful. Uh, so that's that's one of the reasons why we we uh, we did we ended up doing this uh, ourselves and kind of used uh, you know some of our kind of metrics uh, as kind of the focus for the, for the experiment. Uh, so yeah, that, that's the big reason. Yeah. It means the reports for the the data plane in the report, there's a section that talks about the data plane scalability, uh, and the, 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 tests around that. And so we have done minimal effort, like really like not too much, uh, not too much, uh, you know, kind of data plane test. That doesn't mean that, you know, consoles any less performant, like it's, it's, it's basically what you see out there, uh, in terms of, you know, what you would see for Envoy in terms of performance. Um, but yeah, it means we focused on the control plane scalability, and, and those are the results that we went in detail in. And we did reference the Meshry folks uh, in the report. So if you want to check that out, definitely check it out.
0: So finally, we get to the important stuff, which is metrics. What did you measure, and how exactly did you measure them? And uh, if, between Paul and Mishra, I am hoping to get a, a, a more straightforward explanation of what some of these metrics mean.
2: I would let Paul go. If you want a straightforward explanation, let Paul explain it. I love the way he explains things. Uh,
1: dang- dangerous talk, um, I th- So I think, I think, like Mishra was saying, uh, we, we've there's there's already a lot of uh, data in the industry around the, the the aspect of performance that maybe an application developer is concerned about, like you know what extra latency gets added to my application if I if I start to use this mesh. Um, and our goal here was really to think more about as a control plane how how well do we scale out and so we have to ask ourselves like what does it mean to to scale well as a control plane right and i think the main thing is like the main thing a control plane in a service mesh does is it's the source of truth for what should be able to speak to what what the rules should be within the mesh and and you know the the configuration of uh, where where all the different workloads are in the cluster the service discovery component, and so the the what you're really talking about when you're talking about control plane scalability is is how uh how many workloads and how many proxies can be configured and stay up to date and be reliably reconfigured on changes and so on um by this control plane now you can have like a very scalable control plane that only updates the proxies once a day right. So, like the latency of proxy updates isn't necessarily like the be all and end all of scalability, but I think what we wanted to show is that I think what what operators expect when they use a product like like a service mesh is that when they apply a policy within their control plane, they expect that to be reliably delivered and to have everything kind of update and and kind of honor that within seconds right like they don't want to have to wait thirty minutes for everything to to Resolve and start taking effect, like you would with DNS changes or something similar. Um, and that's kind of key to some some service mesh like use cases, right? Like if you're trying to run like a canary test or an AB an AB test or something like that, you you need immediate control. Right? You c- you can't like uh, increase your traffic to ten percent and then wait for an hour to see if it did anything, because that ten percent of traffic might be failing now and you don't, you know, you don't really have a lot of control. So I think it is important that control planes are reasonably performant in the way that they can, like, keep control over all the proxies within the cluster and, and get updates to them quickly.
0: So this is what in the report is is basically propagation, right? So how long it takes for console to propagate any configuration changes to something?
2: Yeah, so I think there were two main things that we wanted to focus on. Uh, one was Uh, One was endpoint propagation, which is essentially, uh, you know, a case where you have, let's say, you're using some form like, you know, uh, microservices deployment, where you have one service depend on other service, and that service depends on some other service, right? Uh, And there's like a chain, right? And let's say your downstream service changes, um, then how does... How do you, how, I mean, how how does that change in the cluster get propagated down to all the services that it kind of depend, you know, that depend on that service or something like that? Um, so essentially, you know, propagating those changes uh, from the control plane to the data plane. So essentially from the console servers to the console agents that are running on the nodes, the 10,000 nodes that we, that we had up and running. But uh, what we did here is that we actually, you know, had a very pathological case where you had... Pretty much every proxy or like every application in the in the service mesh. So we had, as I mentioned, I think 178,000 uh, applications uh, which were running in the console cluster. So essentially, what we did is we basically had like all of the hundred and, you know whatever it's 178,000 you know uh, uh, proxies or sorry applications and and I'll explain why I'm like interchanging them in that way. Uh, we had all of those depend on one upstream. And we named that upstream with a really unique name called Service Hey. That's what we came up with. That was like what, uh, you know, after years and years of thinking about this since 2019, that's the best thing that I could come up with. And I I don't know why Paul let me do this. (laughs) I I had nothing to do with this name, nothing. (laughs) So, well, that's clear. (laughs) that's the most important part of this podcast <laughs> to, to remember that, that Paul had nothing to do with the name, but yeah, so the, the, so yeah, so there was 170, 178,000 uh, service instances. Each one was running a sidecar proxy on y proxy alongside it. And these are all containers, by the way. So that makes about 356,000 service instances in total in the cluster. And they're all being health checked by consoles. So they all have health checks. Um, so essentially, what we did is we depend we basically made an upstream dependency for those hundred and seventy eight thousand on this service hey upstream. and then if that would change, then all of these hundred and seventy eight thousand services need to update the config because they all you know dependent on this one service. Uh, so this is kind of a pathological, you know, case, but in real life, you know, hopefully you don't have like in production, you don't have something, you know, something architected in this way, but this kind of shows you, you know, this kind of would show us like, what, what is that propagation time for endpoint updates and which is exactly what we measured. So what we saw is like about 96.6% of the proxies, which is about 172,000 service instances got that up endpoint update from the console servers. Um, you know, under a second or within a second or so, uh, which is quite impressive if you think about it. There's a lot that goes in delivering these events and also across like networks that are maybe unreliable, which is what we found with, with you know, with the 14% that was left, uh, essentially we saw a really long tail. So the reality of running in uh, 10,000 nodes in production in a cloud environment, you know, of course the network is super reliable, right? Uh, it is not the case, right? <laughs> like the network wasn't that reliable, so we saw like T- you know TCP timeouts. We saw like uh, c- connection drops, uh, which forced the console agents in a retry, you know, back back loop, which essentially means they were just waiting uh, for a minute or so for reconnecting and so on. And if they couldn't reconnect, then they would go back again uh, into the retry in retry loop. So essentially, uh, you know, we saw some uh, some some scaling issues and which showed in the long tail. But even then, the performance was pretty good for a 10,000 node cluster. We saw 96.6% of the instances got the event uh, uh, within a second or so. And then eventually, to note here, one important thing to note here is that eventually within like about 10 minutes or so, uh, all the other services that were left, the the 14% also got the event. So it wasn't that, you know, this event, you know, you just lost the fourteen uh, percent in the cluster. Now they they definitely got their bet. So that was the like, the first test, and uh, I let Paul explain like the the second uh, test that we had for this.
1: Yeah, Mishra sure keeps saying fourteen percent, but I I make it four percent ninety six from a hundred. But yeah,
0: I was running <laughs> the calculation in my head. I was like fourteen. Wait a second. So everybody, clarity. We'll edit this out. We're not going to edit it out. I'm kidding. Uh, it, it is 96. Was it 96.6 percent? Was yes. that what you? Yeah,
2: that, okay? that's correct. So, so basically, it's going to be on record that I don't know how to do math. Is that how? <laughs> it's
0: fine. So it's 96.6 percent. Everything was fine. 3.4 percent was not so fine. But it took 10 minutes for the rest of that to establish. You know, to get the the right information and the right configuration. I think that's a decent TLD. The last
2: proxy, I guess.
0: Yeah. Oh, the last proxy. Okay.
1: Yeah, and uh, like to to go in a bit more on what Mish was saying about networks. I think along the way we did find some actual bugs. Like the very first time we ran this on more than what I think it was five thousand nodes, it the graph didn't look quite like it does now. Um, and we can talk about that in a bit, but by the time we'd got to this point we we did spend quite a lot of time kind of digging through a lot of those like three percent that weren't getting the update immediately um and sort of trying to categorize like exactly why didn't this get it is is it that's still a bug and in every case we looked into it was it was something network related and in some cases it was even hard to tell what it was like we we could we we ran tracing right the way through the system down to each individual request so we could see the exact like the exact time the server sent the data onto the tcp connection and then it just didn't show up on the other end of the tcp pipe for sometimes like 50 seconds and there were a couple of different very distinctive numbers and and when we kind of looked into it, if you look at the the standard t c. p. retransmit times within a linux kernel, like they often corresponded to those so like all the evidence suggested and and the retransmit counters on those nodes tended to be higher than others and so on, so the evidence suggested that it was just like occasional packet loss here and there causing those just kind of network delays rather than anything kind of systemic in the software um and then as as Misha said sometimes uh uh nodes would lose their tcp connection altogether and then they would go into a kind of a, a, a retry uh, exponential backoff which we do to keep the cluster stable so um and and in that case you know it even if they do reconnect on the next try they might have reconnected 20 seconds after the thing came out and so they're now 20 seconds late and, and so on so that was kind of how we uh, what we saw in that long tail at this at this scale.
2: Yeah, and then I think I want to cover the second portion of the the tests, which were uh, around intentions. So intentions in console are the ways you define access permissions for service and policies, like for traffic shaping. So, for example, if Service A wants to talk to Service B, the question, uh, you know, this is answered to the questions like, can Service A talk to Service B? Right? Like, so that's defined and expressed uh, via intentions in in console. So. That's another important detail. If some, you know, let's say something were to happen in production and you were to change this intention and this affected like a large number of services, um, how quickly is that policy enforced uh, at the data plane or how quickly is, the, is that policy change uh, propagate from the control plane to the data plane? So that was the the second test. And here, uh, the only, you know, kind of thing that I, I think was interesting to me is that, you know, um uh, if we were to create a change that would affect, you know, we wanted to create an intention that would affect a large number of nodes. Uh, so what we saw is that when we created an intention, which, were, which would affect a large number of workloads running on, I think, nine, 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 six nodes. So I, again, I want to be clear about my maths at this time. I won't get it wrong. So you essentially had like, uh, about almost like ten thousand nodes, but you know four nodes were missing because I don't think they were running uh, the workloads that were affected by this intention change. And uh, so when we created this intention, uh, what we saw is that all of all of these nine 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 six nodes got the events under nine hundred milliseconds. So this was even more, uh, you know, I guess performed in that way. Um, and and we saw a pretty decent latency distribution. I think P ninety P the P95, P ninety five sorry P ninety nine was uh, eight hundred and fifteen. 0.2 milliseconds or something like that, which is still quite impressive uh, for uh, intention to propagate through across the system uh, from the control plane to the data plane. And again, these uh, measurements are at the agent level. And for for example, the endpoint propagation uh, measurements were at Envoy proxy level. So you saw the um, the change actually be acknowledged by Envoy. But for the intention propagation times, uh, we couldn't quite you know use the Envoy logs to let us know, even like running it in debug mode, we couldn't quite pinpoint that change and measure it at the proxy level. So we just, pro- we measured it at the agent level that's running on the host that is running all these containers. Essentially, it's quite close to what you would see for the for the proxies as well. And maybe Paul can add some details around this as well.
1: Yeah, so this this is the time it took to get the intention data onto the agent itself. And the agent is running on the same host uh, as as the, each of those proxies and then sends that data down over the gRPC interface that the proxy is using to to be configured by the agent. So it's typically only a, like a few additional milliseconds from that point on. Um, and so yeah, so we saw less of a tail on this, and it was maybe a little bit influenced by by that last hop to the proxy, but on the whole uh it wasn't really because most of the delay we saw in the other cases was actually the network between the agent and the server
0: so i'm just trying to put some perspective on this because i think it's um for me it's like i hear 900 milliseconds it's a little bit less than a second if i did my math correctly uh and and i'm trying to think about how relative this is or or why it's important and so the way i've been thinking about it is that if a let's say a security team finds a problem right um, and they need to suddenly deny the traffic to you know across a large swath of, of services for some reason um because you know there's some bad actor they want to remediate something like that basically in less than a second for approximately 10,000 of these um you could push out an intention or a policy that says deny all the traffic you know via the proxies to these services
1: that's exactly the right assessment that what we're trying to show here is that you know the the mesh gives you this power to control traffic in this way whether it's for security reasons whether it's for um, kind of deployment reasons load shedding whatever whatever you need to do and and you can rely on it actually happening when you ask it to and not you know being another thing that you have to factor into like a long rollout or or so on It, it the control plane just gets gets that done and then you know, very few number of seconds will make sure that what you want to happen in your cluster is what what is actually happening in your cluster.
0: Yeah, I did look this up. The average human reaction time. I don't know how scientific or how this is proven is how proven this is, but it is two hundred fifty milliseconds. So by the time you react to something like this and you need to do it, and then the time that you actually implement it, let's say on a firewall, uh, you know, I think that if you try to configure this in service mesh specifically, console. In this case, you get it done, you know, in a little bit less than a second, which isn't much more from a scale standpoint, isn't much more than your average human reaction time. We talked about the two sets of metrics that you were measuring. My question is, how did you measure them? Because it's metrics and and getting telemetry from anything is really difficult to begin with. So how did you get all of this information between the proxies, the console agents, uh, and the console servers
2: there's this is a this is again a learning process uh, that was a learning process throughout this experiment that how is the, what's the best way to get the most accurate metrics uh, right so initially i remember like maybe a year ago or so i don't remember the exact time but uh, paul and i sat down and we did this analysis of like okay how are we going to get these metrics uh and, and we, we put out some stats D uh, kind of, you know, counters and, and so on in the, in the console code base that we can relate to and figure out, okay, you know, this is maybe the best way to do it. But the reality of, you know, measuring data using things like stats D is that there is aggregation at like pretty much every level, like you say at the agent level, maybe that's collecting your stats and then something that's shipping it. And maybe the platform aggregates and and so on. So it's not quite accurate, like you know, especially for as you can see, we're talking about milli, you know milliseconds and you know maybe a second or so here. Uh, so we we means if we could if we wanted to be kind of I guess naive about it, we could have been like yeah that's fine you know it. We could publish a report that says console takes from one second to five seconds to update, and you know if that were, and I think that would be good enough for users to be honest with you for most users. But if, you know knowing. Uh, if, if you know, if you know HashiCorp, like we are very, you know, uh, intent, we, we have very intent driven motives with like when it comes to, you know, doing these benchmarks, it's very academia focused. Our products are very academia focused and uh, we really truly care about the, 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 re- the exact number in this case. And so this is where we we leaned on just logs. So essentially we had like these log statements at very key critical points. Um, and this is, you know, of course, uh, something that you know we wanted to be very cognizant of. But then, with measuring it via logs, uh, the challenge is that there's a lot of logs, right? That's a, there's not like you know one log. You know, we pretty much, I think, if if we, if I remember correctly, pretty much hit every limit that we could hit on uh, on on running like a uh, you know, I, I guess like running uh, journald or something on a Linux box. So we were logging using journald just to standard it out and. We hit the general D limits, and you know we hit like RSS log limits. <laughs> like we hit like pretty much every limit you can think about. Um, and, and then we we learned from that too that you know if we want to do this in a in in this environment, uh, and we were producing all these logs. So I think just to give you an idea, throughout this whole experiment, since we started from the lower node uh, milestones to all the way up to ten thousand nodes, we we did about one point eight billion log lines. So that those were all the one point eight billion log lines that was processed by Datadog. Um, and then once so essentially once these logs that we really needed and we were able to isolate like changes like you know to the upstream or changes to intentions uh, we were able to write some tools that would fetch logs from datadog and I actually give you uh, give you a really nice you know spreadsheet or CSV file uh, with with timings right and then we just use um, a library I think it's called goplot i don't I don't quite remember but it's a, it's in the it's in the source code for um, uh, um, uh, for, for, for this experiment, the, the, the GitHub repo and so on. But we used that to kind of plot that uh, using Go again. Uh, and we generated these pretty nice looking PNG files that we can actually look at. Uh, and the ones that are, you see in the report are pretty much that same PNG file, but it's prettified by our amazing design team. Uh, so essentially, it is like the, the very raw output that you're seeing out there Uh, with with some modifications in terms of design and like for for readability and so on so yeah essentially that's the the you know kind of the i guess more practical side of measuring this Uh, maybe paul can add some of the kind of the internal side of like how difficult it is to measure when you're kind of operating an experiment at this scale your system
1: isn't the only thing that's being tested right and like I, I think, Mishra, sure I remember that journal D thing. We spent a long time debugging. Maybe it was about five thousand nodes at that point. Like, why are some of these proxies not getting messages delivered? Like, we just can't see anything. Like, and if if we look in their logs, there doesn't seem to be anything wrong. And it took us a long time to realize that we just weren't seeing every log, single log message. And because because the delivery was just one single log line from each one of these proxies like the fact that we were hitting some limit in journal D for the number of logs a second. And so some were getting dropped on the floor at source meant that we were just never seeing them. And I think once we figured that out, things got a lot easier, didn't they? Like, I don't think we ever saw issues with data dog dropping stuff like that, that once we'd figured out our end, the rest of it was really rock solid, but it really shows that there's just, there's just so many levels of, of like scaling and, and kind of performance to
2: think about just to even run the test alone. You really have to think about kind of the holistic system and not just tunnel vision into your own product and whether that works or not.
0: So I hear one bug that you encountered, and, and that was specifically with how you started blogging. But did you run into any other issues or bugs in console itself that did affect results? I know, Paul, you alluded to this early on that uh, the first round of testing in 5000 nodes yielded some issues and bugs that you had to go back and fix.
1: So an interesting thing with this particular experiment as well is like, it it came at a pretty interesting time for console because it wasn't, it wasn't the reason, but, but kind of coincidentally, we were just at the point where we'd rewritten one of the most important internal um, protocols for how we actually update things efficiently uh, to be significantly more efficient. Um, And that, that particular feature was which we call streaming. And you can read more about in the report like that. That was actually in beta at the time that we were doing this. Um, and that's going to be the default backend as of our next console release uh, very soon. Um, but it was, it was a good time because we got right up to, was it 3,000 nodes, Mishra? We were running tests at 3,000 nodes. We were seeing deliveries to every single proxy with no no tail latency. And it was all looking... Absolutely perfect, even at 3,000 nodes. And it was only when we got up to, say, 5,000 that we suddenly started seeing a whole like range of weird things happening with the tail latencies just suddenly stretching right out. And part of that, as we've kind of discussed, is, is as you uh, grow the cluster, you kind of are more likely to get unlucky with with the network right you're more likely to see packet drops where certain certain things go wrong but the reason it was so bad originally was actually a, a couple of different bugs in this new streaming protocol that just weren't even apparent even at 3000 nodes um and so it was it, it was like a great test bed for that and it took like if if running ten thousand nodes worth of stuff is difficult debugging ten thousand nodes nodes of complicated distributed system is something else so we spent a lot of time instrumenting doing trace like adding tracing between the server and the client to figure out exactly what's going on and what the timing is and then doing some like pretty advanced data dog like slicing and dicing trying to figure out which were the which were the nodes that were, were slow and like can we then pull up the right logs for those to figure out like why those ones were slow and other ones weren't um what it it came down to was was a couple of bugs internally that that effectively meant that things would get into a state where because of a race condition they would get into a state where we dropped something from an internal cache and not like nothing else happened until after this 10 minute timeout and then and then it might not update again for another ten minutes, and so we were seeing like these weird spikes where like quite a lot of them would get delivered, but nowhere near what like eighty percent, and then nothing would really happen, and then five minutes later like another few thousand would get <laughs> delivered, and then like ten minutes later another few thousand um and it came down to network unreliability partly but also just that interacting with some bugs within console, where it just was kind of getting into these states that it would eventually recover from, but just not quickly enough. And it was a great opportunity to be able to fix those issues.
0: There are a number of service meshes out there and they use Envoy proxy, right? Are there general lessons that you can apply um, that you learn from from this process and using this benchmark in terms of building service meshes at scale?
2: What I learned is that like setting up like the metrics for Envoy uh, at the scale, and let's say you have like, what What did we have? We had like uh, uh, 178,000 proxies, I guess on my proxies running in the cluster, maybe a little bit uh, beyond that. Um, you know, if you were just running the default on setup for metrics and pushing all these metrics out, you know, Datadog were kind enough to tell us that that volume is a ridiculous amount of metrics that are being pushed to a metric system so it is likely to overwhelm the system it means it didn't in our in didn't in our case because we were using datadog and they're quite used to running these really large workloads but they let us know uh, this goes up into like the thousands and hundreds of thousands like you know per second and these metrics can really cost you a lot of money and i think not all the metrics that Envoy puts out are useful, like, especially in the context of, like, HTTP microservices, for example. Like, you don't need gRPC metrics to be sent out and stuff like that. So you you can easily t- tune that. Um, I know you can, like, put config and, uh, you know, the, the sidecars to kind of avoid all of that stuff. So that's a big lesson that I learned, like, during this uh, with, I guess, working with Envoy. Um, and the other thing was that, you know, for the most part, Envoy was super resilient. Like, I don't think we saw a bug that was particularly related to Envoy. Like, I don't think we saw any bug that actually, uh, which were related to Envoy. So it was, it was quite solid, which is, uh, to be honest, this is what we expected. And this is why Envoy is kind of our default, you know, data plane uh, proxy that we use. Uh, And yeah, so this kind of validates the industry results as well of like, you know, you know, that Envoy solid works at scale. And this is why you see the adoption in kind of the cloud providers as well, like a bunch of cloud providers using Envoy now uh, behind the scenes. So yeah, that was kind of the, the big learning if you talk about just the data plane side of things. Yeah,
1: I think in terms of kind of how you design uh, scalable control planes, I think doing this experiment definitely, uh, I, I I say kind of brought brought to reality a lot of the things that we, we did know and that you know we have have learned from console over the years where um like flat out performance and resilience are two different things that sometimes sometimes compete right so like we probably could have tuned console to to get everything under a second in this case, right? Because we could have just made all of the like retry times super aggressive, and we could have basically just had all the clients like spinning their CPUs, trying to get things as quickly as they possibly could so that we could optimize this particular latency metric. But that's not what you want from a real system. Like what you actually want is for it to fail gracefully and if your servers do go down you don't want all of your th- tens of thousands of clients like suddenly hammering to try and like get reconnected as quickly as they possibly can and so there's there's this inherent trade off between kind of like raw performance and update performance versus uh kind of predictability and and control and and kind of graceful failure at scale and um to an extent the long tail in this case is, is the story of us failing gracefully when, when the network goes down rather than like very aggressively trying to do it as quickly as possible uh, with no regard for the stability of the system.
0: I know that there's a lot of, uh, there are a lot of parameters in console that you can tune. Um, would you redo this test with really optimized parameters for performance and not for reliability?
1: no like we we didn't really even consider that as an option here um there's another example I can talk about in a minute as well, but like we've we think it's really important that your control plane is scalable and can deliver these updates quickly, but like we don't have a particular interest in like publishing absolutely astonishing benchmark results that aren't useful to people in the real world right and like there's no way we would recommend someone run a cluster in production that has all of the like the retries tuned right down and stuff just so that they can see their intentions propagate a few milliseconds quicker uh when what we know is going to happen is eventually their network's going to go down or their servers are going to have a bad day and and like this is going to cause like a A much bigger outage out of what could have been like a recoverable situation because of you know they're not tuned for resilience they're tuned for like flat out speed, um so we're not interested in running a benchmark that is is a is a configuration that we would never run and recommend to run in production.
0: I heard there's an example that we could cover.
1: (laughs) Oh yeah yeah so uh an interesting thanks for the prompt an interesting um thing if you look in the graphs we explain it a little bit in the report as well is that um no deliveries happen at all for the first roughly 200 milliseconds of of each of those graphs and we wanted to leave that in like that's that's real and we wanted to leave that in explicitly but that's a design choice that's not a that's not because we made a mistake and there's there's a 200 millisecond gap and the reason for that choice is is again a, a trade-off in engineering terms so the way that each uh console agent works out the right configuration for the sidecar proxies that are connected to it, it has to look at lots of different resources, at least five, maybe even thousands of different resources within the console servers, which it has to watch for updates on all of those things on independent requests to console. And so what happens if you do that, if you kind of build it naively and you bring up a new proxy and you start watching for all these different things, is that the initial results from all of those things come in a few milliseconds apart and you end up reconfiguring the proxy over and over and over again in a loop, like five times, maybe a thousand times, right? Which isn't actually a benefit to, you know, the proxy doesn't really work until it has all of the config it needs. And so what that that delay is, is it's it's a short 200 millisecond delay that we put in there to kind of let let the a whole batch of updates across different resources that happen to come in at the same time kind of coalesce them into a, just a single update to the proxy because that you know ultimately that that keeps the proxy more reliable and allows it to just focus on processing data plane updates instead of like constantly reconfiguring itself and again that's a thing that we could have just tuned that out and made the graphs look better but we we think that's actually a benefit to our users um, and as you said earlier rosemary like that's still quicker than a human could like see the updates within console and go, go change the proxy. But what it does is it means that we can, we can like trade off a little bit of latency for, um, reconfiguring envoy fewer times, which we think is, is worthwhile.
0: I have one question, uh, one question about the scale, the benchmark. Um, and then we can go to our final, final question and close out. But did you use this as an opportunity to measure gossip at scale?
2: Yeah, I guess uh, Paul can go in details, yes, but I can give you a kind of a general context. So we did uh, we did do a, I mean, this was quite a late addition, to be honest with you. So while we were on this journey, when we reached like a certain scale, uh, you know, the, the console team, of course, Paul and I had a discussion and and we said that, hey, like we are spinning up 10,000 nodes in reality. And like everything is, uh, you know, uh, you know in, in console, everything, you know, all the nodes that join the cluster are, are in a gossip pool. So essentially, we, we're already part of this gossip network. We might as well, you know, run the, a gossip test, uh, which kind of maybe gives us good insights into gossip uh, and, how, and how the behaviors at like different, for different events and stuff in the cluster um, and learn from it. So yeah, I think Paul spent a substantial amount of time in uh, figuring out what the metrics that were the right things that we wanted to kind of, you know, because console gives out a lot of, you know, metrics. So essentially, we kind of filtered it down to things that we, we think were appropriate and so we designed uh a kind of a in in console terms a, a watch-based mechanism to, to allow us to remove notes really quickly and maybe Paul can go into details and then and then see what impact that has on the gossip pool and stuff like that and and get the metrics out there but yeah we did end up doing a a, a good amount of gossip testing as well for the for the for the I guess the larger node sizes uh, for the larger larger note counts I guess
1: that's that's exactly right. And like this this was kind of not part of the, the report and the main main focus of the experiment. But uh, one one of the features of console that is sometimes hardest to reason about like exactly how it scales and like at what point is a cluster gonna be too large or is it gonna take a lot of resources is is the fact that every agent within the cluster gossips um and kind of joins this gossip pool. Now, our gossip algorithm is, is very scalable. We've seen it run an even larger than 10,000 node clusters um, in the past. But often we're asked, you know, like, how, how big is too big? Like, what, can, what kind of performance can I expect? Like, how much memory is it going to use when it does this? And it's very hard for us to give those numbers because we don't typically have, like, 10,000 node clusters around. And so given that we had it was a pretty great opportunity for us just to like do a little bit of extra work and make sure we at least captured like a really good picture of what gossip looked like at that scale. Now we didn't experiment with it. We didn't try and create worst case scenarios for gossip where we like, you know, flapped lots of nodes in the cluster and so on. It was, it was really just steady state. We never saw any issues with gossip throughout this, you know, throughout this whole experiment, it wasn't that we were like on any sort of limit, but we just wanted to be be able to show our, uh, like internally what what it is what it looks like when you're running a cluster at that scale. Um, and, and yeah we, so we got some great data from that and it's been really helpful for us as engineers to to know what that actually looks like because we don't run 10,000 node clusters every day either.
0: I have one more question and it's a very very important question. I admit, though you can't see this on the podcast, but Mishra shaking his head. <laughs> if you were a musical instrument, which one would you be and why?
2: Oh my God. This These, I, like Paul's been on the podcast before. Paul's answered these questions and I have asked it, I think, or Nick has asked these questions uh, to Paul. But yeah, I think this is interesting. So for me, um, you know, guitar was like the first musical instrument that I learned when I was really young. So I do have kind of a bias there, but more recently my friends and my fiance, they were really nice enough for, for this pandemic birthday that I had in, on, on, in April. Uh, they, they gave me a, a keyboard. So I always wanted a keyboard, a piano, and I wanted to learn. So I would say like, you know, I've had a, you know, a huge fascination, you know, from like in, in, in kind of the music in terms of instruments and with, with the piano. Like, I feel like it's just so elegant and so amazing uh, whenever you see someone play like something really beautiful. So I would say, I would say it would be the keyboard for me, like the, the piano keyboard. And um, and the reason why is is just, I have a fascination, you know, with it. You know, there is something, you know, magical about someone, you know, you know, p- you know playing some keys. It's just, it is what it is. That's, that's how I'm going to say it. How do you follow that?
1: <laughs> so I I have a really not very interesting one but before I share the not very interesting uh, one my my background my my degree was actually in audio engineering so like I I'm in a strange position where I I love music and I've spent a lot of my earlier life kind of being very involved with music and Industry and with bands and sound engineering and so on, and so I never considered myself much of a musician just because I worked with so many uh, kind of professional level musicians who just you know knew their instrument like the back of the hand. All that said, I think drums is a thing that I love. I just love to play with my drums. Um, I just don't do it anywhere near enough now. I work in tech, but I, I do love them and. I think it's one of those instruments that when you find a re- like real virtuoso drummer, it's just absolutely incredible to watch. Uh, so yeah, I'm I'm a drum.
0: Excellent. I would be a ukulele. I, I'm learning to play it, but it's very accessible. It's very portable. Sounds it still sounds pretty good. You know, decent enough uh, for a, an introductory uh, instrument. So I would definitely be a ukulele. Also, my ukulele is purple which, you know, I also really, it's my favorite color. So I really that's
2: that. that's great. Yeah, I, I had no idea they, they made purple ukuleles.
0: They do, they do. It's great. If you're a listener and you just have a 10,000 node cluster lying around, you are welcome to reproduce this benchmark yourself. You can check out the full write-up at hashicorp.com slash CGSB. Uh, and there is actually a GitHub repository we'll attach in the show notes as well. Thank you so much to the two of you for joining us today, and we'll see you next time.
2: Thanks, Rosemary. Thank
1: you, Rosemary. Always a pleasure.
0: You've been listening to HashiCasts with your host, Rosemary Wong. Our guests this episode were Mishra and Paul Banks. Be sure to tune in next time.